All right, thanks for tuning in again, guys, to another episode of Time to Be Frank. We got part two this week of uh, me and Mikey talking about heroin and the opioid crisis. Um, so last week, where we left off with Mikey's experience, he had um, dabbled in recreational, uh, you know, heroin use as well as a bunch of other recreational drugs, which eventually led to this point where he was using heroin every day. Um, this led to a point where he was left with a choice of whether he wanted to go down a darker path of like possibly robbing somebody or committing, you know, more severe crimes or quitting heroin. And, you know, he, he decided at this point in time to, to quit heroin and, uh, that about right, Mikey. Yeah, that's right. And so what, what are we talking about today? All right, so last week, you know, we really dove into talking about addiction, what that looks like, uh, how it played out in my life. And uh, I think it would be appropriate that this week we actually start to talk about recovery. Sounds good. So I guess to pick up where we left off, so, you know, you've decided you want to you quit heroin. I guess we talked about how you kind of went cold turkey. You went to your grandpa's house. Uh, and took like a bunch of weed and a bunch of wine yeah. and a bunch of sleeping pills and tried to sleep it off. How far do you think that got you all out? Like, how far do you think that got heroin out of your system? Like, do you think you were almost completely clean after like, a, I don't know, two weeks of doing that? Or how, how long was that when you did that? So I, I was only actually there for about three days, um, okay. and that kind of got me through the major hump. Um, and then obviously, you know, there's another week or so of uh, severe physical discomfort um, after that. But there's actually something that uh, we talk about in, in the recovery community called the pink cloud. And uh, I think I'm remembering that correctly. And the pink cloud is this uh, this place that you get to when you first get clean. And it's awesome. It's really weird. Your body has this strange way of after being abused for years on end, um, actually rewarding you for getting off. So your body both punishes you with withdrawal, but then if you can fight through that for a little while, it'll reward you. And so uh, my, my buddy and I, we hadn't heard the dank or the pink cloud thing. Uh, we called them dank mornings. Uh, and it was just like this sense that you would wake up in the morning and you just felt as good and as free as you had ever felt in your life. You felt so good. You felt like you could take on the whole world. Um, and that doesn't last forever, obviously, but it is enough to, uh, to kind of help you initially. So, you know, I went to my grandfather's, uh, then I spent you know, a week or so after that, kind of going through the, the real withdrawals of it. And then after that, I started to have these dank mornings and uh, I was enjoying life. But, you know, I didn't know how to actually um, be completely sober. So I was I started drinking heavily. I kept smoking a lot of pot. Um, again, I think I talked about this last week that I was putting myself in a very dangerous position looking back on it now. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't recommend uh, my recovery regimen uh early on because i had no idea what i was doing i was making it up as i went along yeah you were free balling i was free balling uh and you know there's um something that i talked to some people about recently that kind of comes to mind which is that a lot of times the the older thinking behind recovery was that 
it really needs to be all or nothing right off the bat. You know, you have to, to get rid of um, everything. And while I think that that is absolutely the ultimate goal, it doesn't always play out that way, practically speaking. Um, for instance, at this time when I'm getting clean, uh, my goal was not actually to get clean, like get rid of heroin completely. My goal was actually to get to a point where I could use once a month and I could have a functional life. But once a month, uh, I would use, I would still shoot up heroin. Um, I couldn't imagine life without it. I mean, even at this time when I'm completely desperate, totally lonely, there's just no imagining my life without it. So my goal was to, uh, to actually just diminish the use. But after about a month or so, um, and I'm still trying to go strong and, and just kind of see how long I can go before uh, I use again, um, I actually ended up uh, doing something completely unexpected and it completely changed my life. Now, I, last week I talked a lot about my actual drug use, but something I didn't really talk about was my spiritual beliefs and background. Um, I was a hardened, bitter atheist for a lot of my life. Uh, I would say from about the age of 12 or 13 um, up through the time where I was trying to get sober, I did not believe in God, didn't want to know God. Um, but something that I was always confused about was how people just didn't really seem to care a lot of times. A lot of the people that I knew and would talk to about God um, who didn't believe in God, uh, they would say, you know, it's just not something that really interests me. But I, I was not like that. You know, I say hardened and bitter for a reason because I deeply cared about whether or not there was a God. Uh, I just firmly believed that there was not. And I thought that it was really, um, you know, almost evil uh, without having a moral compass to go by. I thought it was kind of evil to perpetuate these ideas about religion um, since there was no God. And then everybody needed to be free from this slavery. What do you think experiences or knowledge or you know, moments led to this hardening that you're talking about at 12 or 13? Yeah, so I was touched by death at an early age. Uh, my father passed away when I was nine years old. And uh, when you're nine years old, you're not capable of actually working through grief, um, as I later found out in counseling. Uh, so it wasn't until about 12 years old, when I hit adolescence, that your brain starts to be able to kind of comprehend uh, the, the significance of the loss that you've already experienced. And it's this really weird, disorienting um, experience that, that leaves you ultimately feeling very alone and uh, disconnected from people. And you can make a choice to connect with people, but I didn't. And when you're touched by death at an early age, I think it does really drive a desire to, um, to understand the things that really matter in life. And so I spent a lot of time at a very young age contemplating uh, God and, and what that would mean. You know, my, I grew up in a, a fairly Christian household. And so when I was going through this experience of grief, I was met with, um, you know, sayings that people oftentimes kind of throw out uh, that are meant to be helpful um, and can be helpful if used correctly about uh, you know heaven and about God's purpose and his divine plan kind of like he's in a better place yeah he's in a better place good thing you know all things happen for a reason you know God's plan is mysterious it's like a tapestry but I'm sure all those are coming up empty when you're 12 or 13 and you're and and you're not really like that doesn't solve anything yeah yeah I mean they they felt comforting at first um, because you know early on I didn't really know any better 
Um, but but I was the kind of kid who kept thinking about it. And so as I continued to think about it, I, I realized that without knowing uh, enough, really just knowing enough to be dangerous, uh, I, I got this sense that, okay, well, if God has a divine plan, if he's in control, then he's the one who killed my father. You know, he's the one who decided to take him away. And I just couldn't understand why um, a god would want to take away someone who people dearly love and uh, and why he would want to hurt me. And I felt like even if God exists, then he is not worth knowing or following. Mm-hmm. Um, there, There's obviously a lot more that went into it, but, but essentially that was really the driving force. So, you know, I'm now approaching, quickly approaching uh, age 21, and I'm trying to get off of drugs, and I've been miserably... Um, stuck in... Well, one thing really quick first, before sure. we get back to where you are as leaving heroin, do you think that kind of having a world view, frame of reference, that this life is all there is? That because you're kind of convinced that that if there is a God, that he's not good, and so most likely the best explanation for how you're experiencing the world might be that there is no God, and then this life is all there is. Do you think that leaves you at a place where instead of thinking about, you know, impact and things like that, you're at a place where you're looking to have the best possible experience in this life since this is all you have? Like, do you think that's, like, part of maybe what... what led you to turn to like stronger and stronger drugs to have this like better high better sense of relief that you were talking about last week Hmm. do you think that played into it or do you think that might be an oversimplification i I think i think it did i think it's a great question um i honestly i'm not sure how much of that uh was conscious how much of that was unconscious I, i think that certainly some of that was there um, but but what I can say more clearly, and I think relates to your question, is that I felt this deep, aching void for most of my life. Mm-hmm. And it was very palpable. And I do currently believe that everyone has a void inside of them. Um, but I was very familiar with mine. And when I used drugs, specifically opiates, that void felt filled for, you know, maybe a moment but it felt filled maybe a couple hours you know a couple hours um wh- whatever time i had it felt like it was being filled when and you get that taste going down your throat yeah the, the first few times yeah 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 and um and that's um I, I think that that's absolutely what i was trying to, to kind of get across last week when i talked about that sense of relief was was a sense of relief from that emptiness mm. So, you know, I, I was very familiar with that, um, that, that aching inside of me. Um, and at, at 21, I, or I, you know, I was about a month away from 21, and uh, I met a girl, I met some people, and they shared with me for the first time uh, the good news about Jesus Christ. Which was surprising for me because, first of all, I, I thought you know, in my mind that I hated Christians, didn't want anything to do with them, didn't want to talk to them. The only thing I wanted to do was tell them, you know, to to free themselves from this 
you know, foolishness, which is believing that there is a God and being a slave to him. Um, but I found myself in a position where I didn't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. Look at my life. You know, look at how everything's turned out for me. Everything's shit. You know, the only relationships that I had left, um, you know, were my mom, who is a classic enabler. Um, God love her. I love her very much. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I, I, I don't want to make, you know, I want to disparage her, but she is. She's a classic enabler. And and my best friend at the time, who was also a junkie, we were totally toxic together. And he was now moving across the country. He moved to Portland, Oregon. So I had no one um, other than my mom. And, you know, look at how my life is turning. I, this isn't what I thought uh, things, how I thought things would go. So quick question. Something that you've said, you know, years, years ago to, before to me is that when you're on heroin, it kills your sex drive. Yeah. Is that accurate? That is accurate. So, like, while you're on heroin, like, you had a girlfriend before, but it seems like the more you turn to it, the less you had that desire to be in in that kind of relationship. Do you think, like, at this moment where you're, you're, you know, going cold turkey, um, you're kind of getting it at least somewhat out of your system for the first time in a long time, do you think that kind of, like, you know, romantic, whatever, sex drive comes back. Do you think that is is kind of a motivator, at least somewhat, to, like, look for people of the opposite sex at that point? Yeah, that, that's definitely <laughs> that's definitely fair to say. I, and I appreciate um, your uh, your tact in the, in the way that you asked it. Uh, but that's absolutely true. Um, heroin, opiates, uh, they do kill um, sex drive. I, I know for men, I guess I'm not 100% sure for women, although I've I would imagine, um, you know, there are people who are engaged in um, various relationships, but uh, it's not all that common, to be honest. In that world, it's it's a pretty sexless world. Other uh, than from my experience, other than your dealer, yeah, yeah, the first time, uh, who? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Other than that, uh, I don't think I don't think they were deep in enough at that point. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty sexless existence, which is strange because, you know, you think of uh, the seediness and the depravity and you imagine that there's probably all kinds of perversion happening behind the scenes. Not really with opiates. Um, it's it's not really like that. And so, or at least not – or at least sex or relationship is not the focus of that in that context as much, right? Yeah. There, there's, there's um, you know, some Because I've heard for... of seedy experiences where maybe – people prostitute themselves well yeah that, that's a way to, to earn money right mm-hmm. uh, but most of the people that you'd be pimped out to would not be junkies themselves yeah they would not be active users because frankly like for my from my own experience i had no interest in sex frankly women kind of just annoyed me at that point in my life <laughs> which was really strange because um you know i i, I was not like that um when yeah, i was much, younger much it was very that, very clear that it was the drugs. And so coming off of the drugs, you know, I had suddenly this desire to like get, you know, my shit together. Like I'm missing out, you know, I don't have um, any kind of companionship and, you know, my sex drive is coming back. Um, you know, I, I want to kind of catch up like, man, it's like I've been in um, cryostasis for the last, you know, six years. And suddenly I would like to have a life. And, um, and so I was trying to catch up. So like I said, you know, I'm, I'm talking to these people who are sharing with me the good news about Jesus Christ. And I'm actually listening because 
I realized that I didn't have all the answers. I was not as smart as I thought I was. And I also, beyond just understanding uh, a small sense of humility, I, I understood for the first time that I had sinned. You know, you, you don't use an active addiction and treat people the way that you treat people without coming out of it and having a sense that I have done morally wrong things. At least that wasn't my experience. And I really can't understand people who would think um, any differently. I mean, yeah. you know, I was ready to, uh, to rob people. And uh, the only thing that held me back was fear. It had nothing to do with morality. I was not, you know, a good person at that point. And these people are talking to me and they're telling me what I thought I already knew and yet was hearing in a way that for the first time made any sense to me at all. And I, I, I you know, so much so that I could have sworn that I'd never heard it before. What, what no do you think ever clicked differently this time? I think what clicked differently was this idea that um, God actually desired to have a relationship even with someone like me. And this idea that um, he was not only uh, ready, but that he was on a hundred percent willing um, to forgive me that so much so that he had actually actively gone to the point of paying the price for me. And that was in the form of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Mm -hmm. um, so my, my sins were ready to be uh, taken care of. In fact, they were taken care of as long as I was willing to just reach out and humbly ask in prayer that God would count that for my, myself personally. Count Jesus's death as a payment for your sins such as you know uh turning to or, or becoming completely addicted to this drug and like kind of the depravity that came with that yeah yeah and you know i'm looking for a fresh start that sounds good you know mm -hmm. i want to be forgiven i want to have a, a blank slate and um you know there were other uh spiritual kind of connotations like this idea of being born again. Um, you know, Nicodemus uh, and Jesus talked, um, and Jesus described this idea that you must be born again, and that really spoke to me um, at the time. There's also um, this language in Romans chapter 6 that I, I'd like to read real quick. Um, starting in verse 5, it says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So there's this idea that, you know, I have already died. And if I'm willing to acknowledge that, if I'm willing to acknowledge that that this death that I've experienced, and that, that was very... Uh, visceral for me that idea that if i'm willing to acknowledge that that i can actually experience freedom for the first time and you know somebody who had always thought that god was you know wanted people to be his slaves to suddenly realize that actually i had been a slave to this thing this drug and that he was w willing to offer me the first true freedom i'd ever experienced that was powerful uh and i was i was all in so the first time that I heard that message that night, I actually made that prayer uh, to receive Christ. And, you know, for anybody who's uh, who's wondering, it's not like I was uh, completely convinced on every aspect of everything. In fact, I still thought that the Bible was probably a huge crock of shit. Uh, but 
what I was willing to acknowledge was that, uh, you know, Jesus probably was real and that he probably did do these things. And if he did, and if God is real, then I could have everything I'd ever really wanted. And so why not take that chance? Uh, and so that, that night I, I prayed and, and God forgave me and I've had a relationship with God ever since. That was about 10 years ago, just over 10 years. Well, that's pretty cool. So that's kind of this, this moment in time where you're, you're getting off heroin, you're realizing that that void's at least somewhat still there, that you don't have a full explanation for it. You get introduced to this idea that, that you can be forgiven for the mistakes that you've made, and that really resonates with you. And so you're willing to take a step there. Now, did that solve all the problems? <laughs> I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it. Yeah, so <laughs> it was a bumpy road. Uh, it still is. Um, you know, I, I relapsed uh, several times um, not long after that situation. Uh, I didn't give everything up immediately, so I was still drinking about a fifth of whiskey every day. Um, when I and I, you know, before I would go to church meetings, uh, I would get high and I would get drunk. But you know, you start to realize, man, I enjoy everything that I'm hearing and experiencing when I go. But then the next morning, I can't remember any of it, <laughs> and so I should probably just take it a little bit easier this time you know let, how about i just drink a little bit less i just smoke a little bit less and you keep doing that until you know a few months later realizing that i was kind of coming to this point where if i actually wanted to get everything that i could get from a relationship with god you know i, I had to make a choice i had to give up smoking pot um i had to stop getting drunk you know i had to make these decisions but that didn't come all at once um and even after that I, i've i've had problems um but a huge source of uh, comfort, joy, and support in my personal recovery has been uh, a ministry that our church, uh, Dwell Community Church, sponsors called um, Hope Ministry. Mm -hmm. So Hope Ministry is a unique um, recovery group. It's, it's not the only one that strives to do this, um, but they're, they're certainly less common. I think everybody is familiar with the 12 Steps. Uh, that would be your AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, your Narcotics Anonymous, uh, even your Narconon, um, which is for, uh, or no, sorry, Al-Anon, Al-Anon and Narconon. Those are for, for family members of addicts. Uh, you know, they're all based around this 12-step model that uh, you, you start by acknowledging a higher power. So that made sense to me. Um, and then you go through all of these steps and, and you work your recovery. And I like those programs. I have no problem with those programs. Um, but I did find them to be lacking in something. And so I, um, I went to this group called Hope Ministry. And what Hope Ministry strives to do is to uh, really get everything that we need from uh, the Bible. So everything that we need to know about recovery is informed by the Bible. And I think that a verse that actually makes, always makes me think about kind of the difference there is John, uh, the book of John, chapter 10, verse 10, which says, The thief, speaking of Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So, you know, thinking about addiction being this tool of Satan to actually steal and kill and destroy, I mean, how much more obvious of a connection could you get than that? Uh, but that Jesus is on the other side saying, but I have actually come so that you could have life and you could have it to the fullest. 
And when it comes to uh, the 12-step recovery programs, from my experience, I think that they are pretty adequate in giving people back lives, but I don't think that they're very adequate in giving people back lives to the fullest. And I think that a lot of people uh, who are diehards will probably uh, be you know, throwing their phone or whatever they're listening to this on uh, through the wall. Uh, but I really do think that until you've experienced something like Hope Ministry, uh, you're just not going to understand fully what I'm talking about there. Do you, so what you're, what you're saying basically is that you think it gives an adequate path towards uh, maybe a life without drugs, but yeah. it doesn't get into the full explanation of the joy that the Bible talks about and, and the filling of that void, which is often why people, you think, come to a place where they end up you know, searching for recreational drugs uh, that are that are hard, that are like as you know strong as these. Yeah, um, I think that makes sense. I mean, I think a lot of people, for the most part in this world, you know, go on in a day to day life, you know, just kind of at this mellow like I'm just going. Yeah, you know, and so what you're saying is it might get them to that point, but it doesn't get them to the full point. Of what their true desires are saying which is like I want to experience joy I want to experience life to the fullness uh, that Jesus is talking about I I think that makes sense and I think too it's like with the AA and NA um, stuff that you're talking about I mean I, I think that that's still really important that they're able to help people just even get back to that maybe status quo and then maybe hopefully from there people can can you know move towards the real truth but i mean it's not easy it's not yeah. easy for any of us Absolutely. to get to this point of understanding the fullness and to find joy i mean it, I, I think it's really rare to to see somebody who you look at you can look at their life and you can say that person is fulfilled that person yeah is is joyful there's a few people throughout my life that i've seen that i'm like that guy has something that most people don't. Um, one guy in high school, like the four people around an art table, who all you know knew this same guy from just different small parts of life. Were like that guy's, that guy's extremely nice, extremely friendly, and seems to have something that that no one else does. Hmm. Uh, and we could all point to that. So that was one unique point where I, I could see that. But I, I do think. Um, there's even movies a lot of times about this. Uh, Simon Pegg did one called Hector and the Search for Happiness or whatever. And um, it, it came to some actually pretty good conclusions um, by the end of it. But it, it was about like a, a psychologist who is working every day with people who were very dissatisfied. And he's like, I'm not satisfied with my life. So how can I be the guy who they come to to help them? realize you know their satisfaction and so he goes out he comes to a conclusion along the lines of like serving people and, and um, finding really cool human experiences I don't think that's you know the fullness uh, to the depth of what we're talking about but I think yeah. it's part way there you know the idea of like really making real relationships we're talking about real human things and, and serving people and showing you know radical love I think that's a big part of it so i think he he pointed to the movie pointed to at least a good part of the answer but um but i'm sure we're going to get more into 
kind of what you mean by the fullness um, as we keep talking. Um, but what I want to get back to, so it sounds like, you know, you, you're off of heroin addiction. You're, you know, self-described alcoholic at this point. Mm-hmm. You're able to kind of fade off of that and, and the marijuana with that um, for a time. Um, and, you know, you're early in faith, early in, in Christianity. So at this point, you know, some might think, well, you, it sounds like you're talking about maybe finding the answer. What happens at this point? Like, what, what do you think? Um, yeah, what, what happens at this point, I guess? Yeah. Um, at this point, you know, things are are coming together for me in a way that they had never done. I mean, but I had a lot of catching up to do. Um, and I have really carried that sense for a long time i think i finally started to get away from that um but you know for the first few years of recovery there's you know people talk about this idea that you don't really grow while you're in active addiction and so you know if you really dive deep into addiction uh, in your late teens when you come out of it you're still kind of a late teenager in terms of your relational intelligence um emotional intelligence and uh and these kinds of things and i really felt that you know i felt like everyone around me seemed to know how to have these deep friendships they seemed to know how to relate with one another how to be vulnerable with each other um how to love each other and while i was always good at dicking around with guys and joking and you know doing all that kind of stuff um i really wasn't intelligent in terms of my relationships so that, that's something where uh, both my church and uh, Hope Ministry were, were really helpful in terms of um, developing those skills. Um, but, you know, it, it took some time. I would, I would caution anyone who might be in some sort of some level of active addiction who might be listening to this that, you know, these things come in time. It's not going to come together all at once and, you know, to not give up and to understand that, you know, relapses happen too. You know, I, I relapsed several times along the way. Uh, I relapsed as recently as, um, I think I just hit over two and a half years sober again. Um, I was drinking in secret. Um, and for about six months, I was getting drunk and not telling anybody. And I was hiding it from my wife. And I was hiding it um, from everyone I knew. And just pretending like, oh, I'm a social drinker. And, and it's okay. You know, I have this background in addiction. But I'm the, I'm the sober guy. I know what I'm doing. Like, you, you can trust me that I'm, I'm not going to be abusing this and stuff. I, I know how serious it is. And uh, it just became really easy at this point in my life to start to, to push it and to realize that, you know, I'm an adult. Nobody's holding me. Um, you know, there's accountability in life, uh, but nobody's watching me all the time. And if I want to make decisions that I know are harmful for me, but not just me, also my wife and my, you know, potentially future family, I can do that and I can get away with it, at least for a time, right? Um, So I started drinking and it was really painful to own up to that. You know, it was painful to lose uh, several years sober and go back to one day. Uh, And it was painful. I had actually left Hope Ministry for a time. I think that that was part of the problem as well. Um, because I felt like I had kind of, you know, one recovery and a lot of people get that sense when they've been in recovery for a while. Um, and to have to humble myself and go back in as 
no, I'm not, I'm not coming back here to serve the young people. You know, I'm not coming back in here to help the newbies. I'm coming back in here because I am a newbie again, and, and I need help. Uh, that, that was pretty difficult, but um, absolutely worth it. I found nothing but, uh, but forgiveness and grace and honesty from the people that I've uh, done recovery with. And, um, yeah, by the grace of God, I have I'm coming up on, uh, on three years, and I'll have that actually just shortly after the birth of uh, my first child, a daughter. Nice. Well, that's, I mean, that's definitely a um, significant victory right there. Um, so I guess let's, let's backtrack back to when you're, you're 21. Um, right. You're, you're sober at this point in time. Uh, my understanding is that after a while, um, you turn to a drug called Suboxone. Yeah, I was wondering if you'd ask me about that. Uh, I mean, yeah. So, definitely get asked you about it. But um, usually, my understanding of Suboxone is that it is a drug that people use to uh, kind of fade off of heroin. Yeah. Because it it hits some of the same brain receptors, but in a way that's less destructive, less. Um, maybe uh, euphoric and more uh, just about like helping you get the cravings out of your system but from my understanding at this point you were past the point where you needed Suboxone yeah. and you turned to it as an opportunity to get back onto something that you know you remembered is it is that fair to say yeah it is fair to say it's a little bit more complicated than that well um, let's hear let's hear the complication yeah so suboxone is interesting um you have to understand that when i first started using uh suboxone was relatively new i don't know how long it had been around uh, i know that's you know subutex i believe was out before that and uh and suboxone the name actually makes a lot of sense it comes from the combination of two drugs which is subutex um uh buprenorphine is the um the real name for it but subutex was the um you know proper name uh, what, what do you call that not generic name i don't remember um and then naloxone which is a drug that actually enables um the user to become sick if they go back to using so it's got this kind of, uh, you know, way of helping you with the, the subutex, the buprenorphine, to not crave anymore. And then it's also giving you something that'll make you sick if you relapse within the next 24 hours, uh, maybe, maybe 12 hours, really. Um, so, you know, you're kind of you're getting this combination. It's an interesting drug. It was relatively new, and it was kind of the Wild West when I was first using it. Uh, there was uh, this clinic in town um, that I was going to, and I went to get on Suboxone uh, a while before I actually got clean. Um, the, the situation was I was more or less pretending to want to get clean, uh, but what I knew was that if I could get my mom to pick up the bill on this very expensive drug, uh, because there at the time you could not get insurance to cover it, if I could get my mom to pick up the bill, or no, sorry, actually my mom's insurance did cover it. It just was a couple hundred bucks for the appointment. 
Anyways, if she was willing to pay for it, I could get a whole month's prescription, and then I could sell the majority of the prescription, use that money to buy dope, and then I could keep enough so that when I wasn't able to cop dope, I could have that to keep me from getting sick. And, and that's all it would really sick. do, yeah. is it would keep me from getting dope sick. That's what happens when you're in active use. Uh, and the place that I was going to, I mean, they were doing all the shady things. They ended up getting shut down. You know, they're they're creating these windows where uh, it's like two hours and every junkie in town shows up and packs into this place. There's a hundred people waiting to see the doctor and then they just see you rapid fire and there was really no regulation as to what the treatment was supposed to look like. So basically, if you paid the money, you got the script, you went home, you filled it. Somewhat, um, somewhat like a pill mill. It was essentially, my understanding is that it was based on the pill mill model, mm. which pill mills had been shut down by this point, um, which is actually what really stimulated uh, the heroin craze um, because these, these pills were no longer being flooded into the, uh, the street market. Uh, but it was essentially, it, it functioned much the same way. So, you know, that was my experience with Suboxone prior to actually getting clean. Then I got clean. And I had a few months. And I started to have these intense cravings again. Um, I could not get the drug off my mind. And I got really scared that I was going to relapse on heroin. Okay. So I didn't know what to do. But I knew that Suboxone was actually helpful for kind of taking your mind off the drug. And I figured at the trajectory I was going on, I was actually building a, a ton of tools. You know, I was really actually getting what I needed to be able to make it clean for a long time. But the question in my mind was, am I actually going to make it long enough before I relapse to where I actually get to continue using these tools? Does that mm. make sense? Yeah. So what I decided was let's give Suboxone another try. And this time I'll do it for real. Um, so I went back to the clinic um, and I was honest with them. I told them I have not actively used in the last few months, um, but I told them about the cravings. I told them about the situation and my background. And um, you know, this is probably another case where they should not have prescribed it to me because if they were actually doing their jobs, they wouldn't have. And I think that they did see it as a paycheck and uh, maybe it would help this guy you know I don't think that they saw themselves as bad guys I think they figured okay well you know this guy thinks that it might help and frankly maybe it will I don't want to see him relapse so they kind of threw me a bone so to speak and uh, and they brought me back into the program so I started taking naloxone now or suboxone so the problem with that was that I had been so long without uh, any opiates in my system that my tolerance was really low and the high level of dose that you're prescribed on a daily basis to be able to fight something as powerful as active heroin addiction uh, is way too much for someone who does not use opiates actively. So I start taking it and I am getting fucked up. I mean, I'm like nodding off uh, in the on my bed for like eight hours. And, you know... <laughs> It's like one of those things where, honestly, at first I didn't, like I knew that it was a problem. I knew that that wasn't good, but at the same time, uh, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and also, you know, at the same time, I felt like I'm doing the right thing. Uh, but, okay, so that was my first, you know, kind of dose. And then by the time I did it again the next day, 
I was like, this seems scary. So I actually went to the guy who was my spiritual mentor at the time. I mean, I, I really was trying to do this all right. I went to my spiritual mentor at the time and I explained the whole situation. I said, you know, here's, I told him I was going to go back to the program and then I was telling him, hey man, I don't really know what to do because here's what I'm experiencing um, and I'm not sure if I should continue or not. And basically, you know, he didn't know a whole lot about this stuff, but he figured kind of the same as the doctors, like, well, you know, if, if this is going to potentially keep you from actually going back to the real thing, uh, let's, let's wait on it, give it a little bit of time and see how it goes. So do you think if, if they had prescribed you a smaller dose that that would have had a more, a much more positive effect of like maybe helping you with the cravings without the, the real rewards? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I'm not sure exactly what the dose should have been, but I will tell you that I scaled it back to, I think a quarter of my dose per day and I was still getting high and uh, and then um, pretty quickly my tolerance started to skyrocket again because I already had the tolerance uh, I don't really know how to explain a tolerance it kind of eludes me still but it's kind of like a callus right yeah it's like a callus that builds back real quick uh, so you know within I would say my stint with getting actually high from Suboxone was over within a couple months um, and, and that was going back to taking more than my daily dose, you know, now, now I'm taking like, uh, one and a half to two times my daily dose to keep getting high and, and it's not really working anymore. But, you know, despite the fact that I did everything in recovery incorrectly, except for bringing Jesus Christ into my life, it's the only thing I ever did correctly. Um, besides that fact, I didn't end up pursuing it any further I, I i went over my daily dose and then i realized well i'm not getting high anymore so i might as well scale back so i started to scale back i got down back down to the regular uh prescribed daily dose and then i just took that every day for two years and then uh in the last few months uh maybe maybe six months before two years uh i started to taper down so i started to go from um you know i, I think it's eight milligrams a day maybe um, I started to go down to six and then I started to go down to four and so on until I was taking, you know, I had pills, uh, pill form. I was taking a fraction of a pill every day, like a, a small enough that it wasn't even a quarter of a pill. Um, I, I couldn't, I couldn't actually measure it at, at that point. And I figured, okay, I must be good. I mean, I'm taking like the smallest amount that I can even kind of conceivably work with here other than just breaking it into some dust. Uh, so I, I decided that that was probably good enough and I went off of it and, uh, that next month was hellish, uh, is really the only way to describe it. I, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't physically worse than getting off of heroin, uh, but it was much longer in terms of its discomfort. Yeah. The intensity of the discomfort. Cause you're talking about three days before when you're going cold turkey off of heroin versus this is a month long experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was about a month before I would say that from getting off of heroin within a week, I'm starting to feel the way that it took a month of getting off of Suboxone to start feeling. Okay. It was awful. And, uh, my pink cloud kind of, eventually? no pink cloud, no pink cloud. This Not time. at all. Okay. Dark cloud. 
frowny cloud. Uh, it was awful. And uh, every day my thoughts were consumed by satanic attack, uh, but also just um, open craving and temptation yeah. every day, all day long. Um, I did end up getting drunk, and uh, and I had to confess that to uh, to the people that I, I was closest to, and they, they showed me grace and forgiveness. Uh, my now wife, but girlfriend at the time, she forgave me, and... Um, you know, I, I managed to get through it, but I guess it brings me to, okay, well, what's the application of all of this for someone who might be, um, you know, maybe they have a loved one who's trying to work through recovery and they're, they're wondering these same things. Uh, I would say that Suboxone is uh, a medication that is powerful. And so it can be powerfully effective. It can also be powerfully damaging and ineffective it can be used incorrectly now some good news is that i believe that now they have um, and i don't know enough to speak to it really but i just recently heard that they now have a form of suboxone that is a, um, a shot that is injected um, and it lasts for an entire month you get one you go to the doctor you get one shot for the next month uh, you've essentially got all the naloxone that you need and you've got all of your cravings taken care of for an entire month, which seems like science fiction to me. Uh, but if that's true, I, I, would, uh, I would consider that a huge advantage over the traditional Suboxone application. Uh -huh. um, but even so, uh, it, it's something that really requires a wisdom and, uh, and the person, if they really want to get clean, they have to know that in themselves that they are ready to really make a concerted effort to try to get clean and if if there's any kind of hesitation or uh or you know wanting to go back if you're thinking oh i'm gonna get down to just using once a month like i was uh that that's not a situation to introduce suboxone to so it sounds like if suboxone is prescribed appropriately yeah. from a knowledgeable and responsible doctor yeah, and used by the user responsibly in the way that it's prescribed. Yeah, it can be a very effective drug that helps um, with leaving uh, opioids and, and the opiate addiction. Um, but if you you know if you choose to abuse it, there there are risks that you're taking with that. Yeah, and and it's not like this easy fix all unless you use it in the way that it is supposed to be used in a way that's responsible to towards recovery and um would that be fair to say that would be fair um the only caveat that i would add is that um i want to make this clear that even if you don't abuse suboxone because of the nature of the withdrawals which i was not familiar with uh beforehand um you know, it is something to take caution and take care because even without abusing it, like I said, you know, the first couple months I was, but then I went another two years of taking it completely responsibly. And, uh, and still I ended up with this very difficult situation. And so, you know, over the course of those two years, I did improve my tool kit. You know, mm -hmm. I, I gained skills, I gained sobriety, I gained all kinds of things that I wouldn't trade uh, but that experience was honestly a moment where it seemed like a, a coin toss whether or not I would be around the next day. 
and uh, and and so to kind of go through all of that and then take this really what seemed like a really big gamble um, is something to really consider. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, do the research, know the risks involved when you're looking into this drug. Yeah. Uh, but there are possible, you know, helpful aspects to it. Yeah. Um, all right. So. One thing I wanted to get back to, you've talked a little bit about Hope Ministry and how that was helpful for you. Uh, you kind of talked about it in comparison to AA and NA. Um, what What is this Hope Meeting like? Like, what does it, um, yeah, what, what goes on when you're at Hope that, that you think really had an impact on your recovery? Yeah, so Hope Ministry, uh, we, we have a pretty simple model. It's, it's not... Um, crazy different from uh, your traditional 12-step meeting, but essentially what we have is a group that is uh, bathed in prayer. There's prayer beforehand, there's prayer afterwards. Um, so, you know, we're explicitly calling on the, the God of the Bible. Um, that's a little bit different than your 12 steps. Um, and then we, we talk about our week. We share what's going on. People have an opportunity to um, talk about any victories, any struggles, any temptations, anything that they're worried about coming up, or even just problems. You know, it, people in recovery have problems beyond just addiction, like anybody else. And that's a great time to talk about it. So there's a, a sense that you're able to, you know, open up to the group. Most people will be familiar with, uh, with something like that in, in therapeutic recovery. And then what we do is a, a short, um, heavy, discussion-heavy based uh, teaching about the Bible usually topical in nature so um, we use a lot of scripture uh, to back up these topics that we talk about and to provide a biblical framework for thinking about recovery uh, but the it's usually not um, the kind of exegesis that you're going to find in a, a bible study um, more typically so we're, we're not pulling from you know one big long passage and and trying to figure out exactly what it's saying we are specifically trying to tailor what the Bible has to say about recovery. Um, and those are hugely helpful. Those have been, been really helpful for me over the years to understand uh, what the Bible has to say about recovery and, uh, and also to be reminded. But then, you know, the real meeting is, uh, a lot of times we say that the real meeting is the meeting afterwards. And that's hugely important. You know, we have fellowship uh, for a while afterwards where we talk to one another. Uh, we, we talk uh, maybe in pairs or in small groups and we really dig into each other's lives and we talk about um, the, the difficult things that are going on and we help people to kind of find their way as they're getting started early in recovery. Um, and to see people make that transition from someone who is marked by most people as being a hopeless case to actually being someone who is in a, uh, a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, being fulfilled and now pouring out and serving other people around them, getting a heart for, uh, you know, becoming a drug and alcohol counselor or, you know, working for a rehab or just, uh, you know, providing for a family and being able to do that. Uh, that's hugely rewarding. And, uh, I, you know, I think that the name Hope uh, is pretty apt. Nice. Well, that's that's pretty cool. So you think part of the difference too um, between AA and like this type of ministry would be the kind of the the idea that everybody 
hangs out afterwards. Kind of similar to what you'd think about sponsorship, maybe, mm-hmm. where, you know, hopefully you develop this real deep personal relationship where you can be vulnerable with one another. But you're saying that's something you guys partake in weekly with one another, also built around the framework of Christianity, of practicing ministry together, of hopefully, you know, um, discussing what their your hopes and your your trials and your you know um, temptations together in a way that you you feel because you're doing it weekly and because there's this kind of unified um, vision behind it you feel like is that kind of part of the difference too between this AA and NA and and hope yeah and that's true and and a lot of people listening who might be familiar with 12-step groups are thinking i go to meetings every day and i talk to the people after my meeting you know every day and i meet with my sponsor every day um you know there are people in the you know maybe say secular recovery uh, community who uh, do recovery a lot more often than we do and that's absolutely true um something that's different though uh that that was kind of implied with what you were saying but not explicit is that we also emphasize the importance of being part of a um a church community so you know we are specifically tied in with dwell community church uh here in columbus ohio and our church is based on this home church model where we have small group bible studies uh that meet together that you know maybe 30 40 people Um, and those groups meet at some capacity multiple times a week and and have their own relationships. And Hope Ministry is um, outside of those groups, but deeply connected to those groups. And and the idea is that while the meeting of Hope Ministry is once a week, um, that that really we're looking to get that that, uh, life and life abundant by um actually being engaged with church community beyond that Mm -hmm. and through that we're actually able to um you know have have a a deep fulfillment and a great synergy between the recovery aspect of your life with god but your life doesn't end at recovery and that's that's something that you know i i don't want to throw rocks at, at people but i've definitely seen before is that it seems like some people are all they're doing is recovery and while it's great that they're not using, that's not the end of life. That's the floor, not the ceiling. And in Hope Ministry, we encourage people to experience the ceiling, but start at the floor. And so we're starting with recovery, but we're moving way beyond that into a, a rich life uh, with people and with God. All right. Well, uh, I really like what you're describing there. That, that's pretty cool. Um, I'm fascinated to learn more about that. Um, one thing that, that you were talking about that I think we should dive more into um, is is the idea of rehabilitation um, yeah. and kind of the different approaches that we see out here. Um, you know, something that I guess I've been introduced to is the idea that re- rehab is, is talked about in a lot of ways and therapy a lot of times – it's talked about in a, way, in a lot of ways as a science, um, but uh, but there's a lack of real like backbone to it being a science. Like it sounds like in a lot of ways it's more like an art form, and that some some versions of it are 
are better than others, but um, there's not a like it, not every rehab is going to be the same. Yeah. In, in what you do, and also in its effectiveness. Yeah. Um, what are what are some of the things that you have seen with with uh, the approaches to rehab that you've seen, um, whether through you know your friends, other people going through recovery, uh, or experiences you know maybe visiting certain recovery or rehab places. Yeah, it's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, now I want to be clear: if, if you were listening to my story, uh, yeah, this week and last week you'll probably notice that I never mentioned going to rehab. And that's because I've never been to rehab. So when I talk about rehab, uh, it's through observation, but not firsthand experience. And and I want to be clear about that because I I don't want people to think um, that I'm speaking from a a point of more authority than I have. Uh, But when it comes to rehab, what I've seen is largely that uh, it's something that's kind of true in in the greater... uh, a sense of therapy and psychology and that there is a great deal of science happening. I, I don't want to discount that. But when it comes to the actual application on the ground, practically speaking, of putting it into practice with someone's life, it does become much more of an art than a science at that point. When, when the rubber meets the road, we do not have as much control or understanding over people's minds as I think a lot of people think. And when I was using, I had this idea that is shared by a lot of people in active addiction, uh, especially those who've never been to rehab, which is this idea that, you know, well, when I want to get clean, I'll go to rehab and that'll, you know, I'll get clean then. But until then, I want to keep using. And the truth is, uh, you know, rehab is no guarantee that you'll get clean. I mean, I don't know the, the most recent statistics on how often someone who does go to rehab returns to rehab uh, but it's pretty high i mean i've known people who went to rehab and this is not uncommon uh 13 times and you have to wonder okay how effective is a program that you're engaging in that many times Mm -hmm. and yet still finding yourself using afterwards a lot of rehab is um certainly built upon the uh the 12 step model which again i i respect and i think that that is good Uh, But there's also a lot of uh, therapeutic ideas that seem to be more um, fluff than effective. Um, You know, I think everybody's, well, maybe not everybody. I think a lot of people have probably uh, seen or or are familiar with this this therapeutic idea of like being around horses. This was a big one, especially in the 90s, where, you know, you have to get the horse to trust you and, and rub it just the right way and it'll lift up its hoof. <laughs> and this idea that like that is, you know, teaching you valuable skills about life. And I've never met anyone who was actually benefited from those types of therapeutic activities. Um, really in the long run, it's, it's a way to pay a lot more money than to, to actually get something that's effective. So you think Part, partially, and, and I watched part of this John Oliver clip um, talking specifically about rehabs that you showed me. Um, you think there is, at least on some level, a for-profit aspect to some rehabs out there where they're, you know, they appear to be in it for helping recovering addicts, but in a lot of ways could be, you know, using 
the types of therapy that they're doing to to make money yeah i mean from the people that i know who either work for rehabs uh or have um you know relatives who are on the boards at rehabs in our city um i know that there is a for-profit if i believe them i know that there is a for-profit aspect uh to a lot of these centers and you know it would be easy to say okay well if it's for profit uh that then that means that you know it's therefore evil and those people don't care it may be ineffective but that would be an oversimplification it's, because it's a gross it's, over, oversimplification if it's for profit but it's done effectively right. it can still be an effective place for for uh recovery certainly and the people who want to make money can also care about the people who are going there uh, but I think that the problem is when there's this idea that people outside of rehabs have that rehabs are really effective, and yet the research seems to show that they're actually not that effective. I know some people in uh, the recovery community who actively discourage uh, people who are trying to get clean from going to rehab because, frankly, there are risks. You could meet people while you're in rehab who have connections uh, that actually open you up to more possibilities to dive into uh, you know, the drug game when you get out. Um, it, it can have negative, negative effects. So I, I don't want to you know, sit here and make it sound like I'm against rehab. I'm not against rehab, but I do think that when it comes to rehab, we need to understand that it is not a cure-all. It is not um, an exact science, and that some rehabs are better than others. For instance, I would highly recommend for any men who are seeking uh, inpatient care that they would go to a program like the Salvation Army has here in Columbus. There's a adult rehabilitation center that is uh, run by the Salvation Army, and while it is far from perfect, because none of these programs are perfect, uh, it focuses less on the money aspect, because they're a nonprofit charity, and it focuses on, okay, let it, give us six months of your life. You live here for six months. You'll work for us. You know, you'll you'll work at uh, not at first, but you know, you'll work at the store, or you'll or you'll make food, or you'll do whatever, kind of like prison. But uh, but it's it's a place where these guys are able to learn about God. They're able to learn about each other. They're able to learn these valuable skills, and it's not within 21 days, within 28 days, and then you're out the door. This is over the course of months. And as you start to approach your time to leave, uh, they are talking to you about, okay, how are you gonna find a place to live? How are you gonna get a job and take the skills that you've learned here and transfer those out there? We're gonna help you to do those things. And if you need extensions, talk to us, let us know. You can stay in the program, I think up to like nine months total. Um, so you can get extensions onto that time if you're having trouble making those transitions. They, they work with you, they care about you, and they want you to make the transition as effectively as possible. And even in those scenarios, when people do all of that correctly, that can still be uh, very difficult for those guys to actually make it on the outside. But I think that they have a much better chance if they've gone all the way through that program than somebody who shows up to a program for 21 days because that's what their insurance would cover and they're you know exposed to some good principles for a couple of weeks but then it's you're out the door and you got to figure out what you're going to do yeah no that makes sense and so one thing one principle i guess we can kind of garner from this conversation is the idea that 
you should be careful in your path to recovery. Yeah, yeah. Um, so really, like, look into the ideas uh, behind, you know, the, the path that you're taking, whether it's AANA, you know, um, whether it's rehab. Um, look into the organization that you're, that you're going into. And, you know, um, if you believe in that program and you've counted the cost and you've looked at it, you're probably at a better place to actually recover in that program than if you're just winging it, taking a shot into the dark and going, well, I'll just go here, I'll just do that. Yeah. Um, it, it's probably better to um, to be strategic in where you approach recovery. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. Okay. So that's, that's pretty dope. Um, I guess... One of the things that I wanted to kind of end on, well, I guess, do you have any ending ideas about uh, helpful tips or, or things that you've learned along the way that you think uh, that you haven't already mentioned that would be particularly helpful? Yeah, I guess something that I would like to share, this is more for people who might know someone who's currently in active addiction and struggling and as a, a loved one, that's an incredibly painful experience that um, I, I've gotten to experience firsthand only through uh, the ministry that I'm part of, uh, never actually as a relative. Um, but for those of you who are watching someone you know, descend into addiction, a lot of times people will ask me, and they mean well, and they ask me, you know, what do I do? What do I say? This person is using and they don't want to stop and I'm out of ideas. What can I do? And the sense that I get when people ask me that is that they're looking for me to provide some kind of insider info that's going to act like maybe not a silver bullet. That might be, you know, oversimplified, but but something that is finally going to stick and convince them that they need to get clean. And the really sad thing, I, I hate doing it. Every time I talk to someone like this, I have to tell them, you know, there is no trick. You can't make someone who doesn't want to get clean want to get clean. My God, if you could do that, the ministry I'm in would be a lot easier. But it just isn't. Um, what you can do is you can try to have realistic expectations. Understand that this is going to be a long process. It's going to be painful. And that's if it goes well. But the other thing is to understand that, you know, if you believe in God, if you believe in a power higher than yourself, whose son is Jesus Christ, you know that he's personal, you know that he's relational, you know that he wants to hear your prayers, and you can pray for that person. And that God is incredibly effective when it comes to convincing someone. You know, I was as far from God as I thought I could possibly be. And yet here I am today, uh, telling you about the, the wonderfulness of, uh, of his word and, and its impact on my life. You know, if there were people praying for me, and all I can say is that, that what you have is one tool in your toolbox, but it is an incredibly powerful tool, and, and go ahead and use that one. Get all the mileage out of it that you can. Well, that's awesome. I, I, I appreciate that, uh, that heads up. Um, Kind of the last thing I wanted to leave people with is a quote. Uh, I talked about this series last week. Again, recommend it. Uh, Dope Sick. It's very recent. 
uh, series from Hulu about the opioid crisis and uh, looks at it at a holistic level as well as on a personal level. Um, it's really good show. But Michael Keaton's character at the end of the show has has a really good quote that I think is is apt um, to end this you know two part series we're doing. Um, he says, "Addiction does the exact opposite of what connection does, right? Addiction tears apart. Part of the reason we relapse is because of pain. There's some kind of pain that's in a lot of us, or all of us. We just don't want to feel anymore." And further, we, and further we fall into addiction, pain says to us, hell, we'd be better off just feeling nothing at all. So we go numb, and our souls go numb. Now we've got a real problem. You know, pain is just pain. Not good, not bad, just part of being a human being. And sometimes good can come out of it. And if we're brave enough and willing to go a little deeper, work our way through it, and try to overcome it, well, we might just find our better selves. Uh, something that I've found talking with Mikey and learning about this topic is that there is a lot of real life value to be learned um, from people who have who have fought through recovery, um, and you know the the honesty that they're having with themselves about the pain that they've experienced. And what it takes to keep going and to fight for hope and truth and hopefully find the fullness that Mikey was talking about. Um, I think, you know, one thing that we can do as people is uh, fight for that in other people. Not in a stupid way where we're just trying to fight, shoot the silver bullet and fix all the problems. But that we point towards... Uh, things that we can ultimately point put our hope in things that can lead to fullness uh, in life and you know use our tools like prayer um, like loving one another um, in a way that is based in truth to really point people in in a good direction and so I, I guess leaving this idea of there's hope to be had this is a really difficult battle that many people in this country have uh, embarked in uh, but there are cool things that can come out on the other side when we're willing to look deep within ourselves and ask the real questions that we really have in our hearts and look at the void in our inside ourselves and and when we do try to find answers I do believe that there are answers uh, we just have to be willing to ask those questions and look deep enough um, to to really find um, the will to, to look for the tools and look for what to put our hope in and look for the truth. Um, so that's kind of what uh, we want to leave you guys off with. Uh, thank you for listening to everybody who's listened. Um, yeah, and if you have any questions, again, feel free to reach out to me or Mikey uh, specifically about this topic, probably Mikey on this topic because um, he's going to be far more educated than I am. Um, but yeah, um, again, thanks for listening guys. Um, and that was time to be frank. <laughs>